the core four and some basic strategies around nutrition, activity, sleep, and mental health can go a long way to help us be healthy and feel good today and in the future. But sometimes those basics aren't enough. And today on Who Cares About Men's Health, the topic is sleep. It's complicated. Sleep, of course, is one of the core four, and it's critical for good health, and it can be really frustrating when you're not getting the sleep you need. And today on the show, Mitch is going to talk about how he had to go beyond the core four to address some of his sleep struggles on his journey to getting more quality Zs. This is Who Cares About Men's Health, providing information, inspiration, and a different interpretation of men's health. I'm Scott Singfield. I bring the BS. He brings the MD, Dr. Troy Madsen. That's right, Scott. I had no idea sleep was so complex, but we're going to see how complex it is. Just trying to stay awake. It's producer Mitch. Yeah, every every day. <laughs> Just trying to stay awake, and hopefully we can talk a little bit about that today. And our expert today, Dr. Kelly Barron. She's a behavioral sleep medicine expert at the University of Utah Sleep Wake Center. And her response to, well, we'll save her response to Mitch's sleep study that he took uh, for a little bit later in the podcast. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know, Troy, that um, Mitch... Uh, you know, it's doing a podcast like this. You learn a lot about somebody. Did you know that like Mitch likes running the true crime, crime podcast? Did you know that? I actually did know that. Yeah. And he's trying to build up his vinyl collection. We've learned that about him. And when yeah. he sleeps, he starts out on his left side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then he's on his right side for mm-hmm. a short time. Then he's prone for a bit and then supine for a bit. And then he ends up back on his right side. That's according to a sleep study. Uh, he also has a sleep efficiency of 75%. Is that good? I don't know. I don't know either. It doesn't feel good. good. It sounds yeah, like a passing grade. Dr. Barron, you're trying to get in among the three guys. We're going to be quiet and let you say what you want to say. <laughs> so, um, no, I think the main – so in a sleep study, you're coming to the lab at just one night. You know, So I, I would caution you to overinterpret something like sleep efficiency because yeah. sleep efficiency is the amount of sleep divided by the time in bed. And so, you know, on a sleep study, they might be like, hey, it's 8 p.m., get into bed, let's start this recording. And you're like, okay, guess so. And, you know, you might spend two hours trying to get to sleep because you normally sleep at 10 or something like that. So that number can be a little bit influenced by the characteristics of how the study is is done. You know, in this case, your sleep period started or your your recording period started about – about, you know, almost 10, like 940 or so. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think the sleep efficiency number also reflects how much you're awake during the night. So – Okay. It, is, it is one measure of how consolidated or uh, consistent your sleep is through the night, um, but it can be, you know, go up or down depending on how they run the study. Yeah. But your, yours is not good, and it's consistent with your experience. Your sleep, right? <laughs> Regardless, it's not good. Yeah. It's just, it's not good. Okay, All that being right. said, it's not good. Here we go. <laughs> oh, it's going to be a fun ride today, uh, isn't it, Mitch? I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> On Who Cares About Men's Health, of course, sleep is part of the core four, and we've done a couple of episodes talking about sleep, and if you're not waking up refreshed or you're having a hard time going to sleep or if you're waking up during the night, some of the like the basics. Now, Mitch, tell us your experience with sleep. When I first started getting involved in this podcast and we were talking about the core four and stuff like that, sleep was always one of the ones that I had trouble with, right? I've had a long history of insomnia, of not really have, of like not being able to fall asleep, not being able to stay asleep, etc. And so after we did the first couple of episodes, I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it. I'm going to focus on my sleep hygiene. I'm going to get into a, you know, a, a rhythm and everything. And for the last year or two, it's been go to bed at 10, 1030, make sure I'm not playing on my devices after a certain time. I got a fancy schmancy sleep mask because that's what Troy told me I should do. Oh, yeah. And like, 
I did everything I possibly could. I waking up at the same time. If I can't sleep, I get up for a little bit and go back. I, you know, I was doing everything I possibly could. I even got like a little app about like cognitive behavioral therapy and sleep to make sure I'm not having sleep anxiety. Like I was doing everything and I still woke up feeling miserable every day, right? I was still yeah. tired. I was still like trying to pound coffee just to get through the middle of the day, whatever, right? And I recognize that could also be a problem and I'd cut that back, but it just, it was all the time, just tired, tired, tired. And so over the last year with dealing with my fatigue problems and everything like that, while I was looking at testosterone, while I was looking at mental health stuff, I was also looking at like, what is going on with my sleep? Because it is so important and like, just like like the the it's complicated series is all about is like sometimes it's a little more complicated than just you know do do better <laughs> so yeah. or you do the things you're supposed to do and it doesn't feel like you're really making any progress mm-hmm. dr baron what you're hearing from mitch is that common or or, or what, what, what's your take on what you just heard right there yeah i mean first of all i mean you did all of the obvious things and I, it can really leave you feeling you know just kind of hopeless or even feel kind of like well maybe this is just all in my head and so you know i think your experience is really common and this feeling of like unrefreshing sleep or you know afternoon fatigue you know it really is it, kind of a question is like what could this really be from and it, it could it could be from a lot of different disorders and th- and that's really the difficult thing is like where to turn and we we do see a lot of patients who have that sort of fatigue or, 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 um, sleepiness. So a question I, I really would have is like, did you feel like it was sleepiness? Like that you felt drowsy and couldn't stay mm. awake? Or did you feel that it was fatigue or, you know, mental or physical tiredness or, or, or both of those things? Yeah. So they were pretty like mixed together. Um, until recently we had an episode where I worked with a men's health specialist who diagnosed me with, uh, low testosterone, hypogonadism. And once that got fixed, a lot of the physical fatigue had disappeared. And it was like, oh, okay. So like it was my hormones were all off. That makes sense. But it didn't solve the tiredness. I was, I was feeling sleepy. I was dragging. I was feeling like I needed a nap in the middle of the day. And it wasn't like, the same kind of physical tiredness like I had oh. before. It's a lot in the head and just feeling like I needed to go back to bed all day long. So that's really interesting. You know, in my clinic, in the behavioral sleep medicine clinic, I tend to see mostly people with insomnia. And so it's difficulty, you know, the difficulty falling asleep, staying asleep, waking up too early. Um, but, you know, sometimes we get through the whole cognitive behavioral therapy and they don't see sufficient improvement. And that's when we would say, Let's do a sleep study, you know, that if they, if they don't have any obvious sleep apnea symptoms, we'll say, let's treat the insomnia. And then if needed, we'll do a sleep study later because we don't need a sleep study to say you're not sleeping. Like mm-hmm. trans is like, we believe you. You don't need a study. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, um, you know, for those patients, you know, we will do a sleep study to look exactly like what you did. You're like, I did everything I thought I should do and I still don't have good sleep. What is going on here? I was going to say, in hearing this too now, Mitch, you know, you recognize the problem. How did you actually end up in a sleep lab? Did your primary care provider refer you or did you just call a sleep expert or how did you get to that point? Yeah. So I had been working with my PCP and um, after we had ha- figured out some of the testosterone and the mental health stuff, it was down down to like, hey, man, I'm still feeling tired all day. And he's like, well, you know, here's this. Well, let's do a basic at home apnea test. Let's try that out. See how your sleep's doing. And uh, the results came back like medium, right? But it was enough of a of a negative result that he's like, "Hey, we should we should get you in." 
Mike, let's at least clear the decks. Let's just at least make sure that you don't have apnea. All these other things are going on before we continue troubleshooting, right? Because that's basically what it sounds like these days is it's like, hi, things aren't working. Have you turned me on and off again? Like, uh, it's just <laughs> so frustrating. Um, but that's fin- finally what happened was the first test was done. It came back with like middle of the road results. And he's like, all right, let's go ahead and try out the full thing. Let's get you all hooked up and... See, just make sure, just make sure that there isn't anything super serious happening with your sleep schedule. Yeah. So it just sounds like it at least raised a little concern in your primary care provider's mind that they wanted to get the full study. Yeah. So, you know, they send you home with this little like armband and finger thing or whatever. And basically the results said like, could be apnea. Like, I don't know. I can't read it. Like, I don't know. But it was just like, there is like it was a magic eight ball. They can't. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe. Right. Was it um was it just oxygen levels or was mm-hmm. it did it have a chest belt as it well? It had a chest it had a chest belt as well. So so you did a home sleep test, which is um which is really the first step for most patients. That's what insurances want people to do first these days. And I think a lot of patients prefer it. I, I think a lot of patients are kind of relieved when you say, Oh, you can take this and just, you know, strap this around your chest and put this on your finger and, you know, wear it at home versus spending the night in the lab. And the research really show that for someone with moderate to severe apnea, they're they're very good at picking that up. And it, it reduces barriers that, you know, someone sure. with kids, for example, doesn't need to find uh, child care or, you know, it, it's, a, it's a little bit less burden to the participant. It, it's um, lower health care costs as well. And um, they do just as well on CPAP treatment if they have sleep apnea and they did the home test. It, it's not okay. like they missed having that experience in the lab. And so I think that that's, that lowers a barrier for patients. But, you know, as, as you're pointing out here, you know, it, it didn't, it, it didn't show that you had apnea, but perhaps it showed a, a little bit of desaturation or, or, you know, a couple apneas that maybe they thought they wanted to have a more in-depth study in an overnight test in the lab. It is really good to hear about that home test too, because I'll say personally, that's a big barrier for me. Like the thought of going to a lab, like an unfamiliar environment and being hooked up to all these different probes and everything and feel like you're being watched all night. That just seems <laughs> weird. I'm, I'm going to be curious to hear oh, about it, it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The home <laughs> test sounds good. That, that sounds doable. So after the home test, then uh, it was recommended that you go and do a, a sleep study. And what mm-hmm. was, what was that like? Now that's where you actually have to go somewhere else and they, they, Hook you up to a few more things, don't they? Yeah, I think I sent you a picture. I had the nice technician take a picture of me after I was all hooked up. But like, it's it is a bit intimidating. Like, you go to this lab up lab, um, and the person like it takes like twenty minutes to get everything on. There's chest straps and back straps, and they have all these wires that are running on, and they they hook up. They put all this stuff through my hair and on my scalp, and so they're like taking these like little bits of rubber or of a sandpapery type thing and making a spot on my head and sticking all these probes on. And then the next thing is like, well, we'll watch you and we'll be able to talk to you. <laughs> like <laughs> crawl into bed with all this stuff. Like give me a holler if you need me to disconnect you to use the restroom. But like, wow. good night. Right. <laughs> Sounds so and awkward. like, I don't know who picks the decor up at the at the U stuff. Like, no shade. It's a wonderful center. Love them. But, like, it was an obviously haunted photo in my room as well. A bunch of, like, three, like, ghostly Victorian women with, like, their heads on their shoulders. Like, I'm, like, not okay. Right? Ghostly so, Victorian women. Like, it's just, I, I, <laughs> I did my training there in, like, 
the early 2000s, and that place has not changed one bit. Oh, wow. And it probably hasn't changed since they put those photos in in the Victorian era. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's meant to look like kind of a sort of hotel room sort of place. Um, And um, and I I do like to tell my patients that, like, we're not expecting the best night of life, best night of sleep of your life. We're, We're not expecting this best night of sleep of your life. We're really expecting to just, get a couple hours of sleep to know how your breathing's going, you know? And so it kind of takes the pressure off, but it, you know, it, it's uncomfortable. You're hooked up, you're in an un, unfamiliar place. And, um, and, and it, it can be, it can be a little bit unnerving. I will say to hearing this, I have stayed in a hotel that is in the top 10 list of the most haunted hotels in the U S <laughs> Yeah, your decor sounds a lot like that hotel. <laughs> no, but it was, it was really a great center. I like, I don't want to disparage it at all. It's just, it was a weird painting to try to sleep with um, <laughs> these Victorian women looking yeah. at you. There's a whole genre of like sleep art in a lot of these paintings depicting these like Victorian women with demons or that sort of thing. It, it it's thought that, a lot of these sleep disorders were interpreted as, oh. as um, you know, hauntings or, or demons or things like that. There's things like sleep paralysis they're depicting oh, where, sure. you know, you wake up, you know, you're awake, you can't move or hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations that you kind of see things as you're drifting off to sleep or as you're waking up. So there are some really famous paintings, like one called the nightmare where there's like a demon sitting on someone's chest. And so sleep people love that stuff. So, <laughs> so yeah, you just, I just, you know, curl up with all your wires and fall asleep eventually. And then next thing I know, I'm being woken up, very kind voice being like, hi, I'm here to unhook you. And then you go about your day, figure out what's and uh, wait to hear from the doctor to read the results. So, yep. And then you get like three or four pages of information here, it looks like. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Mitch sent Troy, myself and Dr. Barron, the results of the sleep study. And we're all playing <laughs> pretend sleep experts. Well, two of us are playing pretend sleep experts. One of us is a is an actual sleep expert. <laughs> two of us are like, yeah, I'm just like picking out this stuff like, oh, wow, look at your oxygen levels. Oh, sure. wow. Which probably is completely meaningless, but uh, I have no experience interpreting this. But I found it fascinating. Um, I don't know where to go from here because I, like, I don't know if I should just ask Mitch, what were you told? I don't know if we should ask Dr. Barron what she's seeing. Sure. Uh, yeah. What What do you think we should do next? So I guess the 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 main takeaway was that I have I do have a, a family history of sleep apnea. Right. There's CPAPs in my family. And so it was like, OK, maybe I have apnea. Maybe I need to figure that out. And it just I was like preparing myself for that. Yeah. Hold on. Let's oh. jump in here. Dr. Barron, what kind of is sleep apnea in the 30 second version? What does that even mean? So sleep apnea is a diagnosis made by. Um, showing that you have repeated pauses or blockage in your breathing at night. And so, you know, they're 10 to 30 seconds long usually. And then, and then you wake up and you start breathing again. So it's okay. a partial or complete closure of the airway. So it's a breathing thing that mm-hmm. is not only doesn't sound great. But now, I should clarify, just... there's two types of sleep apnea. There's oh. obstructive sleep apnea, which is pauses in breathing due to the closure of the airway. And then there's central sleep apnea. And that's when the brain has pauses. And that happens, for example, in heart failure, um, with opiates and, and that sort of thing. And so there's there's two different kinds, but, but obstructive is the most common kind. Okay. Gotcha. So is that what you ended up being diagnosed with, Mitch? No, surprisingly, surprisingly <laughs> not. You I mean, that's the family. All right. As terrible as it sounds, like there was a part of me that was like, all right, my family's dealt with this before. I just get a CPAP machine. It's not the like most exciting thing in the world, but I'll just do it and I'll sleep better and everything would be great. But no, 
no, no, no. That's not what the result said. Yeah, so. and not only that, it doesn't even look like you snore. Nope, because it's not a snore. <laughs> that's you can go so, ahead and put that on your dating profile. You know, the, the signs of the main signs of sleep apnea are snoring, as you point out, snoring, daytime sleepiness, you know, unrefreshing sleep. But but there's also there's people who can have sleep apnea and not snore. Oh, and they okay, can just okay. kind of have some gasping or pauses in their breathing. And so we we often ask them to ask their bed partner if they have one, if they've heard them pause in their sleep, that's a big sign of it. But other otherwise, you also can just have sleep apnea and be unrefreshed from your sleep or, you know, be depressed or irritable. You know, it, it can really come out in a lot of different ways and how it affects you. And even sexual dysfunction, you know, there can be erectile wow. dysfunction, low libido, you know, it can affect testosterone. So, you know, there is, there's a lot of different ways that sleep apnea can affect somebody. It's not, they don't all, not everybody with sleep apnea snores, but it is obviously the most um, outward symptom of it. Yeah. On this study though, it doesn't even show that you snore. So what was it? Um, apparently it's, my leg moves a lot. And so like, uh, Dr. Barron, I believe, how did you respond to the email I sent you showing you my results? Well, there's a little graph at the bottom. I said, holy moly, because there's a little graph, there's a, there's, a, there's a picture of it at the bottom, like the, the events throughout the night. And, it, and it's, you know, it's, it's blue when you have an event and literally your entire night is Pretty much all blue. Like, it's like a solid blue bar. It should yeah. be little lines, you know, little here lines, and there. Yeah. Your legs are twitching all night long, and and they're and not only are they twitching, but it's it's waking you up. So each each time you have a twitch, they've also scored an, an arousal in your EEG of your sleep recording, and so you know, quite substantial that you had um, total limb movements five hundred twenty four over the night, but, <laughs> which is a lot. But okay. it, you look at it per hour, and so in number of limb movements per hour, that's 83.6. And the number ca- number causing arousal is 27.3. And I take it by your holy moly, that's not usual. That's but not something would, you normally see. We would consider it elevated if it's above 10. Oh my. 10 but, per hour? Yeah, but keep in mind, so limb movements themselves are – if somebody is kicking their legs at night and it's not bothering them, it's it's kind of this weird thing. It's like we're unsure of the clinical significance of limb movements um, unless it's causing a daytime impairment. Mm. And so, you know, and most people who have limb movements also have a subjective feeling of restless legs. And so I was I was going to ask you that as follow up is like, do you have a creepy crawly urge to move your legs in the evening? I've had it on occasion. It's never been something super serious. It just comes up on um, occasionally. But um well, I, we can talk a little bit more about what could potentially cause it, I guess, is what I'm kind of curious about because everything's complicated and connected. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, I'm not, so I, yeah. And I'm not, actually, I don't even know what causes periodic limb movements. I mean, there's some, something in the dopamine pathway um, related to it, but most people who have this level in movements will have a subjective, um, subjective um, experience of restless legs. But, the, right. you know, the point of treating the legs is only, it's really only worth treating if somebody feels like their sleep is bad quality in your case. Like otherwise it's not clearly related necessarily to a health risk, uh, having your legs kick at night. There's some studies showing increased risk of cardiovascular disease, but it's not really consistent at this point. Um, It's really to understand whether the limb movements themselves are problematic unless you feel bad. And then that's clearly a target to address. It sounds like in Mitch's case, there was like clear evidence it's affecting his sleep. You said 27 movements per hour that were disrupting sleep. Is that what the report said? Yes. 
Yeah, it's yeah. like every two minutes you're waking up because your legs are moving. That's, yeah. that's yep. impressive. They got it. <laughs> but wow. just, to, just to clarify, like while you're trying to fall asleep, you don't have necessarily restless legs. You don't have this need to move your legs. <sighs> like I would have it like maybe once or twice a month. It was never a big thing. Yeah. There's, there is a genetic side to it or whatever. But one of the things that was interesting is uh, my sleep doctor brought up, uh, speaking of the dopamine pathway, Guess what is a potential side effect of some of the anti-anxiety meds I'm on is maybe an increased rate of restless leg syndrome or occurrence of restless leg syndrome. So it's like, great. It's like a -a whack-a-mole problem with my health sometimes or it's like, great. So we figured out mental health stuff, but is it making my sleep worse? So we're trying to figure out one thing or another, but man, oh man, I was just shocked. I like, like I was saying before, like I almost wish it was apnea because then there's like a clear path forward, but it's just like more complication. And it's just like, okay, what else do I got to do to get, get a decent night's sleep? (laughs) That's true. Now uh, I think all the SSRIs um, are related to restless legs or, or limb movements. Mm -hmm. Um, But well, Butrin is one that's not. So Mm -hmm. not, not all of them are some more than others. Right. And so now we're like, now we're playing with the brain chili as our wonderful mental health people have talked about. Like, we got to go back to the drawing board on this thing. So anyway, it's just kind of interesting. The most interesting thing to me about the drugs that treat restless legs or periodic limb movements is that um, you kind of get to choose one or the other that the drugs either quiet down the brain arousal. So either it's like a benzo that makes your brain more stable at night and you're, you're kicking, but you're not waking yourself up or they're the more um, dopamine type drugs. Those keep your legs from kicking, but then you still have the brain arousal. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is (laughs) interesting and fun. Yeah. I mean like they, but they both, but they, they both improve the symptom, Mm -hmm. which is they do it in a different way and no, like no drug does both of them. I think that the most common drug used, the most recommended drug used is um, gabapentin. And that's what they got me on. I do. So the treatment moving forward is one, work with my mental health person to maybe look at my mental health meds. And is there something we could try differently that might minimize like having just that many holy moly amounts of leg wiggling? Um And then I, so we're messing around with that. I'm on gabapentin and then I do uh some little yoga stretches before bed just to try to like calm the legs and make sure that everything's like relaxed before I go to bed. So. And have you noticed a difference yet? Uh, we've been doing it for about a week. It hasn't been too long. So these, these results are relatively recent, but it's been a week. I, I haven't noticed a big shift yet, but I've told that it can take a while for the drugs to build up in your system. It can take a while for your body to get used to the stretching. So, you know, trying it out, working with my doctor, seeing what's next. So then you're trying out some stretches, mm-hmm. some uh, medications. Mm-hmm. Uh, what What's the next step then to see if this works? Is it just simply, are you waking up more refreshed and bing, bang, boom, we've got it? Or are you going to go back in and, and they're going to check your leg movement again during a, during a, a sleepover study? <laughs> well, so we're going to first try some stuff for the next couple months is what I've been told. It can take some time um, to see if we can improve my general sleep quality. Um, but ju- because of just how much movement I was experiencing, my doctor has suggested within the next year getting going back in, getting back hooked up, sleeping underneath the spooky pictures and going back <laughs> to just get one more time, like make sure that things are actually getting better physically beca- just because of how much leg movement there was in this situation. 
Dr. Barron, I have restless legs where sometimes it prevents me from falling asleep. Um, and then eventually I do. My wife and then will comment sometimes even while I'm sleeping. She go, oh, you're kind of twitchy last night. Um, am I understanding correctly that restless legs like that wouldn't necessarily always impact your sleep quality? Because after hearing Mitch's story, I'm like, something you got to know about me, Dr. Barron. I'm always looking for what's my thing. Why am I? <laughs> Why am I yeah. tired all the time? Why am I lacking energy? You know, and I'm, I'm like doing all these things. Nope, normal, normal, normal. So now here's my new one thing. Like, would my restless legs potentially be causing me not sleeping well too? So do you remember that there used to be a, car, a commercial that said um, the most common disorder you've never heard about? Yeah. Remember that one? So that that's restless leg. And just to go over, um, restless leg now is going by the more complicated uh, title of Wilkes-Eckbaum dis- disease. Oh, okay. um, because we feel like a lot of people don't take it seriously. You know, they say, oh, you just kick your legs at night. But obviously you guys both know the impact on your quality of life. Um, so just to go over what the, what the criteria for restless legs, it's, it's, um, uncomfortable, creepy, crawly sensation in the legs that, that, um, is relieved by movement and it, um, also has come on in the evening. And so it's, it's a specific to the time of day. Yeah. Does it have to be like every day you experience it or like once in a while or, or in terms of time frame? Well, the more, I mean, a lot of people experience it. Um, occasionally, or, you know, I even experience it like when I'm really overly tired or have jet lag, I, I feel like, oh. like the worst is like a very late night flight. I'm so restless. And it's also worse when you have to stay still. Sure. And they, they used to have a test yeah. for restless legs, an objective test where they used to record people and say like, stay still. And then to count how many times they moved. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like torture, but it is a really torturous feeling. And so, um, so, I mean, the severity is related to like how much it disrupts your sleep. How much, how many times a week you have it, you know, how much you feel like it impacts your daytime, you know, that sort of thing. So somebody experiencing it once or twice a week or once or twice a month, that's on the more mild side. Um, But somebody who is saying every night it impacts their sleep, that's on the more severe side. I I guess my question ultimately is, let's say out of a week, maybe it bothers me falling asleep, you know, three nights out of the week. But then I wonder, like, after that, I always just assumed after that, then, all right, I've fallen asleep, restless legs aren't an issue anymore. But clearly what we're seeing here with Mitch is that's not the case, right? The, these They could wake you up in the night and you might not even know that that's what's happening. So just to separate, though, there's the subjective experience of your legs and then there's the objective kicking. And, then, and they don't always go together. And so, you know, as a clinician, I'm most interested in the subjective. So I'm most interested in how much is bothering you when you fall asleep or if you're unrefreshed during the day. Got it. And so I guess if you're having trouble falling asleep three times a week because your legs are uncomfortable, I would say that crosses a threshold of, of going to talk to somebody. So maybe this is that maybe this is your thing too. <laughs> well, <laughs> hey. <laughs> we got something for you, Scott. Yeah, maybe. I'm always disappointed though. So I, I plan on being disappointed here too. <laughs> so, so restless legs though doesn't require a sleep study. Oh, so, okay. Because if your legs are uncomfortable – then, you know, then that, unless you have signs of sleep apnea um, or, you know, other indications to do a sleep study, if your legs are, are restless, that's, that's a, a sign that you could have a treatable condition and then just, then just treat it. You don't have to treat it and then, and then follow the impact like objectively. It's more yeah. about how you feel during the day yeah, or, or how much your legs bother you at night. Yeah. Well, for what, it, what I'm looking for here is I, like I said, I tend to feel like I'm tired a lot, right? So I'm looking at what could possibly be causing that? 
And I hear that like restless legs, you know, leg movement in the middle of the night could be the problem. Up until this point, you know, maybe on a night where I have restless legs, I, I, it puts me going off to sleep for 15 minutes extra. But after I fall asleep, I assume that they're not impacting me anymore. Is that a safe assumption or could they be still going and I don't realize it causing these little micro wake ups like Mitch was experiencing? Yes, it's highly likely that you're having that because about 80% of people who have restless legs also have these live movements at night. I mean, it's so common when people have restless legs that they don't even necessarily need to do the sleep study to document them. Wow. All right. Um, and if someone, you know, if someone's listening or maybe Scott wants to try something before trying medication, what, what would you recommend? Um, interestingly, for restless legs, it has really the most folk treatments of any disorder. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you heard about the bar of ivory soap under the bed. <laughs> no. I was really kind of hoping for something tastier. <laughs> tastier <laughs> of ivory soap. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's some people who have tried magnesium, for example. And then um, iron can improve restless legs as well, and that, that's really the first line if it's if it's indicated because it, it is you know more safe, less side effects than than going on to medications. As with these episodes and talking about health, a lot of times uh, one man's experience then uh, kind of morphs into another man and his experience, and it starts asking questions like here. But let's get back to Mitch um, briefly. Is there anything else looking at this sleep study um, that you you noticed, Doctor Barron, that you'd like to bring up? Well, we were talking about the sleep stages earlier as we were going through this together. And, um, yeah. And actually, I wanted to jump in because we had to talk about you with you about like these sleep trackers that you can get, right? That allegedly tell you how many minutes of REM sleep you get. And we discussed, you know, whether that's the gold standard or not, which it's not. But, um, what was Mitch getting for REM sleep? 39 minutes? 33 minutes. 33, 8.8% of the night. And so again, you have to take the sleep study stages with a grain of salt. Because, again, it's not your normal environment. You're going to sleep a little bit earlier. You know, I don't, I don't know. How, how different is this, the timing of, of the sleep from 940 to 6? Is that pretty consistent from when you sleep at home? Yeah, that's pretty. I mean, I usually do 10 to 7, so okay. it wasn't that big of a difference. So it's similar. But, you know, the thing with REM sleep is you get the most in the early morning hours. And if you have, like, a 20-year-old in the sleep lab and you wake them up at 6, well, that's the middle of the night for them. You know, oh. they're, they're getting their REM usually, you know later, like eight, nine, 10 in the morning, for example, if they're a later sleeper. So, but in your case, this was aligned with your normal sleep. Um, but it, it showed that, that you only, you only had, um, 10% of the night was in deep sleep and, um, 8% was in REM sleep. And, and the REM sleep number is what's really lower. You know, that should really be about 20% or 20 to 30%. And, um, as I look at your hypnogram, which is the, the picture of your sleep, you know, to me, it really suggests that the the leg movements are interrupting your sleep stages. Yeah. And so you can see how even sometimes you like get into REM and then it just like wakes you up. I see that. Yeah, it's because the line goes from like what it's deep sleep, REM, whatever. And then at the top is awake and I keep bouncing right back up to awake. So how does this compare with your um, your like your your fitness tractor? Uh, the fitness tracker made it seem like I was sleeping better. Oh, okay. <laughs> like this. Huh. This is a lot. This is the the numbers that they gave me are much lower from the actual sleep study than the Fitbit that I wear. Got it. Well, Mitch, I guess um, yeah. as, as with <laughs> with other aspects of health, you've you've proven our hypothesis of just focus on the core four. <laughs> Sometimes it's a little bit more complicated. When can we get an update? Uh, did you say? 
they said a couple of months to try and uh, the gabapentin and uh, the stretching and everything. Um, so yeah, we, we'll we'll bring Dr. Barron back on and we can chit chat about how it's improved and because um, yeah, no, it's I I hate to like blow up the core four, but man, oh man, if you are someone out there that like it just you're hitting your head against the wall being like i'm doing it i'm doing the sleep journaling i'm doing all of the stuff and it's still not working like maybe maybe you have shaky legs maybe you have some chemical imbalance maybe you got who knows right yeah. maybe there's something else going on so anyway dr Farron, to wrap this up uh how long should somebody try to do the things that are generally recommended before they kind of take the next step that Mitch took? That's a good question. You know, I, I think if you've done it for a couple months and, you know, you've done all the things you should do, get the electronics out of the room, have a regular schedule, sleep diary. And, and, he, and at that point, that's the time you should come in and, and talk to somebody. And it sounds like he was working with his primary doctor as well the whole time to try to just kind of rule out the different possibilities that could be causing this. And so it was, I mean, this process has probably taken a couple of years is my guess. Yeah. We're on, we're about to enter year two. So yeah. here we are. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's nice though, hearing this Mitch, cause you're right. It is frustrating on the one hand, but it's nice hearing it because yeah, you tried everything, but there are other options. And I think that's yes. a good thing too, to know that you can try all these things and it may just not work for you. And there may be something else going on you need to address and you're, you're doing that. Yeah, you're not a failure. I mean, that's the thing yeah. that like I kept getting in my head where it's just like, am I not doing this right? This is sleep. Like, how is this so hard? <laughs> you know, like babies can do it. Like <laughs> some babies can do some it. Some babies can do it, right? That's fine. My patients are always like, I bet you sleep well. And I'm like, you know, I struggle just like everybody else, you know, right. just stress yeah. and bad habits. You know, I don't always take my own advice. So it's it's um it's not easy for anybody. Except right. maybe babies. <laughs> well, Troy's a new dad, so I think he's going to argue with us. I, on I would tend to disagree. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, that's another discussion. That's a, another podcast. Well, Mitch, thank you very much as always for sharing your experience. Uh, your your health journey has been interesting, and it's been great to talk about. As we've talked about on this podcast, talking about it is how we help each other. Maybe you know find a path to better health, especially when something like the core four isn't working and you've been honest about it and you've given it, you know, the true shot that it deserves. Sometimes, you know, health, it's complicated. Dr. Barron, thank you very much for listening or being part of the podcast and uh, listeners. Thank you very much for listening and thank you for caring about men's health. 